Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertrand. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We're joined today by Michael Hendricks, a senior fellow and director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. You can find out more at manhattan-institute.org. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be with you. Ask you first, as we do with most of our guests here on Future of Freedom, to tell us the mission of the Manhattan Institute. Why does it exist? Sure. So Manhattan Institute, by its very nature, is different from a lot of other think tanks. You know, a lot of the think tanks that we partner with, that we work with, maybe that you've been interviewing, they're based in D.C. Uh, others are based around the country. We are we are uh, a, a think tank that's based in New York City, not D.C., and that operates both in D.C. and in New York. We are in states and cities all across the country. And I think something about being based outside of D.C., has sort of set into our DNA a focus on state and local governments uh, to a degree to which it can be kind of difficult when you're based in D.C. and Congress can kind of be this, you know, tractor beam pulling in all the work of, of, of the think tanks there. Uh, many of them are, are great think tanks that do great work. But we like to think that what we see in New York and what we see working across the country points us toward um, taking our focus on economic opportunity, individual liberty, civic harmony, rule of law in America, and says, you know, we're not just going to fight for that in America, but also in our great cities. And we're going to do work that's focused on essentially what is, I guess we could call quality of life conservatism. So improving the quality of life in our urban centers um, with a with particular focus on um, urban violence, the need for public sector reform. Uh, we also uh, uh, most recently have focused a lot on overcoming ethnic and cultural divides um, by offering, you know, constructive, unifying alternatives to the kind of victimhood uh, ideologies that become kind of pervasive in our elite uh, institutions. And then a lot of the kind of traditional work that you'll see in other think tanks, too, fostering educational excellence, expanding economic freedom, things like that been around for decades really it's established in the 70s uh and i think that we are so excited for what the future will bring i think the future couldn't be brighter for the manhattan institute we want to talk about a few of those issues throughout our conversation today but i want to ask first there is a lot of work the manhattan institute does on uh, on urban america big cities and certainly it trickles into and, and there's also research into smaller communities across the country do you find that different policies are necessary for urban areas, for suburban areas, for rural areas of America? Are there prescriptions that will work for all of us? I, I mean, I think there are, but we do have to recognize that things are different in New York City. New York City is kind of an outlier in terms of its density, in terms of uh, the, the, the uh, share of residents that use public transit. So there are some unique circumstances to a place like in new york city but also san francisco boston dc a lot of these legacy cities um the kind of needs that they have are in some respects distinct but also i think that you look at cities across the country and they look to a place like in new york city to say what can we learn from you that's going right that's also going wrong maybe maybe their response on 
homelessness or, or, or violent crime. They can say, you know, we want to learn from you, but we don't want to copy you. And so, you know, there is a lot of potential to take best practices and ideas and kind of trade them across the rest of the country. So, so there are distinctive aspects of our focus on some of these bigger cities. But also, I think we, we really believe that there are, there are uh, you know, a unique set of things that Americans across the country maybe do not enjoy, but should. Uh, and a lot of that does come down to quality of life. If you look at some of the some of the top factors that Americans cite that they are dissatisfied with today, maybe it's homelessness as, as being one example. That is uh, just across the board in many cities uh, throughout the country. Uh, Americans are saying enough's enough. Uh, we really need to have some answers here because clearly the status quo is not working. Uh, you can see another one on, on cost of living. So, you know, right now we're coming off of a couple of years of the pandemic. People changed why they moved. They stopped moving across states uh, for job reasons to the same degree. And they started moving for uh, quality of life considerations. Can they afford a place to live? Can they start a family? Things like that. And so the kind of enormous rent and home price inflation that we've seen over the past couple of years have really, really become a, a key pain point for Americans uh, across, the, across the major cities. Basically, any, any major city outside of the Rust Belt has become a big issue for them. And it's also become a big issue for the suburbs. It used to be that you'd move out to, you know, you'd move out maybe 15, 20, 30 minutes or in, even an hour outside of downtown to find a more affordable place to live. Now, I mean, you just take a place like uh, like like in Nashville, you can move out to Brentwood. It's going to be expensive. Keep going out to Franklin. It's going to be expensive. Columbia, Tennessee, it's going to be expensive. And so you have to now find even new areas to move out to. That really wasn't the case for, for much of my lifetime. And now that's becoming true. This kind of quality of life and cost of living concerns, they're becoming universal across cities and between cities and suburbs. I was going to ask this later, but might as well ask it now. When we look at this migration across states or from, from states to other states in the country, uh, yes, red states are, are, are gaining, red areas are gaining. Florida, Texas, North Carolina, one, two, three, the last report. California, New York, Illinois are losing. Governors in those states, leaders in those states will say it's not policy-based. They'll say a lot of it is weather-based. People want to go to the Sun Belt. They want to head to Florida and Texas. And, hey, North Carolina's great, too. How do we know that that's not a larger factor than we think it is, that people just want to move where the weather is nicer? Well, last time I checked, California has It's okay. Good that's true, yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and yet people are still, li- still leaving California. That tells us something. something's off, right? When you have a place like California that in many parts of the state have amazing weather, the Golden State, amazing weather, but not just amazing weather, incredibly high incomes. You can make money and live in perpetual 70-degree weather. Like, what's not to love about that? <laughs> and you say, so why are you leaving there? Then they'll say, okay, well, how about uh, a 1,000-square-foot home costing over a million dollars? What about not being able to leave our home for enormous stretches of time during the pandemic and just ongoing public health restrictions that may or may not have anything to do with the science. And just keep going on the list, the crime, the homelessness, the riots, things like that. And you say, well, why would you kill the golden goose of the golden state? 
and, and really, I'll have to, you'll have to ask Governor Newsom that, but I, I think at the end of the day, people say enough's enough. They'll say, you know what, maybe Texas, I'm from Texas originally, maybe Texas is a little bit hotter. In fact, <laughs> often during summertime, a lot hotter. But we can, you know, I can afford a home. I can find a great job. I can start a family. Traffic's a little bit better. Crime's a little bit better. Uh, just go on down the list. And you say, you know what, I think, I think that's worth it. I think that's worth it. So really, the states like Texas, Florida, uh, Tennessee, places like that, these are the, these are the kind of the, the – I, I, I think of them as the trifecta states, the states that offer the American dream. The American dream is still on offer in states like this. And you can keep, you can keep looking at Arizona, parts of Oklahoma, and, and Utah, and just keep going down the list and say, these are the places where the American dream is still alive. That's why people are moving there. That's why a state like California ran out of moving trucks because they'd all left. And they were all down in Florida and Texas and, and Tennessee and places like that. So really, if, if you're a state, if you're not Texas, Tennessee, Florida, Utah, places like that, you should be looking to those states and saying, what's their secret sauce? And I think a lot of it comes down to, well, really, that, that quality of life conservatism that Manhattan Institute points to, um, states where you can have a good quality of life. Uh, I, I like to call the, the cities there, I like to call them have it all hubs have it all hubs because you really can mm -hmm. have it all there you should look to those places those states those cities and say they have the quality of life they have a good cost of living at least they should maintain that they don't have the same kind of divisiveness uh and the same kind of institutional barriers to to access that i think has outraged uh, communities like the asian american community in san francisco who said enough's enough like why are you keeping our kids out of good schools and they have the kind of educational excellence. They have the um, the better traffic. Just going down the list. And now, obviously, those states should be working hard to maintain that competitive edge. But every other state around America should say, that's their secret sauce. We want to have that here, too. Talking with Michael Hendricks, Senior Fellow and Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, you wrote a piece late last year over at Politico, uh, citing a recent report, people value low crime, more public safety, 60%. So they worry that crime is increasing where they live. The Manhattan Institute has uh, long been associated with this broken windows philosophy of policing as sort of an answer for crime. Can you tell us briefly what this entails? What is this broke? What is the broken windows philosophy? When I talk about quality of life, that's Part of it, but that's that's not all of it. So, so back 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 in the eighties, there were a couple of uh, social scientists, political scientists, uh, folks like uh, James Q. Wilson. If you haven't read his work, you must. Folks like that, uh, a, a couple others, George Kelling. They said, you know, look around you, and if you're walking through a neighborhood where there's trash in the street, broken glass, windows smashed out, you kind of get that sense that people just don't care. I don't care about the neighborhood. You get a sense that maybe it's unsafe. Um, others catch up, catch on to that. It's not just you; it's the criminals as well. There was this uh, this tendency back in the seventies, eighties, and the like to to say, you know what, major crime is all that counts. We're going to sit in our squad car, police. It, it's a, they have a tough job. They said, you know, we're going to sit in a squad car, wait for the really tough stuff, the big crimes, the the things like the 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 the, the young kids harassing grandmothers, the loitering, the, the, the sort of petty crimes and petty thefts, you know, that's, that's beneath us. 
you know, folks like James Q. Wilson and others said, no, 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 you, we need to set as a, as a strategy from the top that you should care about those quote unquote smaller crimes. The, the, the fair jumping is another, is another one, the turnstile mm-hmm. jumping in the subway in New York. We should care about that too, because a, when that kind of crime exists, there's a sense of just lawlessness. Again, nobody cares sense of that. Um, but also the people who are committing those kind of petty crimes, they may often be involved in much bigger, more worrisome crimes as well. And so we should care about all sorts of other crimes. And also we should care about that little that we should care about that grandmother who's being harassed, who fears for her safety, um, because she is part of the community as well. And once you actually work with the community, do that kind of community policing, once you begin to care about the broken windows, both literal and metaphorical, but also crucially, this, this is another point, when you have targeted interventions, and uh, Bill Bratton, who became uh, the police commissioner in, in New York back then, came back again, had another successful tenure in New York. When Bill Bratton said, you know, if we have data-driven policing that helps us understand where the crime hotspots are, and we put the police there at the hotspots, we can actually make an enormous difference with even fewer resources. Um, so, so we kind of flood the zone in those high crime areas. We discovered all this back in the 80s, and it kicked off this enormous turn against the waves of violent crime that swept over cities, mid-century America, turned the tide, and led to historically low rates of crime and violent crime, crime of all types in America. And I fear that we became complacent, and when uh, and then we became confused. We became complacent and confused. We began to be concerned about. Uh, we began to be concerned about uh, maybe that we were over policing, maybe we were over uh, criminalizing, and I think we kind of uh, we took our eye off the off the goal. There are critiques of broken windows. I know you are aware um, it results in discriminatory policing in some neighborhoods. Is there any indication to you that that's true? The other question I wanted to ask to that to that end is, should we be looking at policies that actually reduce interactions between police and residents that that could lead to uh, escalating confrontations uh, in this day and age? What we do know is that uh, there are instances where there is uh, there are police shootings. We know of of unarmed individuals. We know that that exists. Um, but we also have to be cognizant of the extent to which that happens, as, as horrifying as it is. We also have to look at uh, where those kind of violent encounters are happening. So there is there is indeed uh, a lot of reporting that's going on over the past couple years and decades um, showing that th- you're going to have a lot more encounters between police and uh, black and non-white, uh, generally non-white individuals across America. Um, I think one of the things that my colleague uh, Ralph Mangual has pointed out and, and also Heather McDonald's pointed out, uh, both senior fellows with Manhattan Institute, is that to the degree to which those uh, encounters occur between police and non-white individuals, um, they do make up a greater share of, of encounters, often unfortunately violent encounters, um, because there are higher rates of crime um, occurring among, for instance, armed and unarmed uh, black men and, and non-white men. And so all of that is 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 incredibly 
sad and unfortunate. Um, but we also have to recognize that there's going to be more encounters when there is more crime. And so, so, so having that as kind of a level set, I think that Ralph and Heather, they kind of point back against these kind of broad brushstroke uh, judgments against police, saying that they, they, it must be racist, it must be unfair, that there's more encounters between police and, say, black men. And I think we have to recognize that if there's going to be more crime uh, in those communities, there are going to be more encounters. And we should be working toward making sure that those are just encounters, that they are not violent encounters. But we also should not unfairly uh, penalize police who are trying to police mm-hmm. uh, those neighborhoods. We, we do want them to be present in those neighborhoods because when they do leave those neighborhoods, they uh, do lead to higher rates of crime when they, when they leave those neighborhoods. So we want to make sure that they are present in those neighborhoods, that they are policing effectively, and that we are giving them the resources that they, that they need. The Manhattan Institute does a ton of research. A recent report from Robert Verbruggen on fatal police shootings and race ended with the uh, comment saying, those expecting data to prove the existence of extreme flagrant racial bias are bound to be disappointed because that is not what the numbers show. When you do research like this, what are the hurdles you get into when you are presenting a conclusion that for some is completely counterintuitive to what they think or believe is happening. How do you change minds? (laughs) Well, I think partly, at least speaking for myself, I think a big part of it is listening to what the other side is concerned about and what they value. And trying trying to, through listening, understand, of course, where they're coming from. But also recognizing that the sometimes there's not as much of a gap in belief or values as you would think. So, so clearly there are, you know, there's activist groups on both, both sides of the political aisle, the ideological aisle. But, you know, one of the things that, that I've found in, in our polling, we, we do this kind of what we call metropolitan majority polling. It's one of our projects. So we found that there is kind of a majority consensus across metro areas in America that values certain things. Um, cost, crime, and classroom issues were, were ascendant in some of our recent polling. And there's a lot of unanimity um, across racial divides, um, across, across other divides that have you know, become pretty salient in America uh, today. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that, for instance, non-white communities do care about education in the, in the same way that white communities do, that that the, the divides are less about um, race, for instance, contrary to a lot of the conversations that have been occurring around around the country, very important conversations. But um, often the divide has more to do with uh, education, uh, you know, sort of like a, a elite educated America sort of over here and, and kind of working class America over here. That is often become the divide. And there's white and non-white on the elite educated side and white and non-white on the kind of the working class uh, side as well. And that once we see where kind of the real divides are occurring today, I can say like, look, you may vote Democrat or Republican. Uh, You may express rightfully one set of concerns and I may have another set. But I think fundamentally we care about some very, very similar things. You know, if, if you're a parent, you care about the future for your kids, the quality of the content that they're being taught, 
You care about them being safe when they go to school. Mm-hmm. You care about being able to afford a roof over their heads. There's a lot that unites us, especially when we're talking about parents, but even beyond that, there's a lot that unites us. When we see that often the divide now is becoming one of education, you know, we can say that, well, first of all, we should desire that as many Americans have access to a you know, pipeline to a good job, uh, wherever that pipeline leads, maybe to college, maybe not. We should recognize that, uh, if anything, groups like Manhattan Institute can do a really important job of bridging that kind of educational divide, which often comes down to a geographic divide as well. Mm-hmm. You know, in New York, in New York City, you even see it within the boundaries of the metro area, where, you know, many neighborhoods in Manhattan are very well educated, very wealthy, very prosperous, often very white. And, you know, we find ourselves often finding a lot more allies in the non-white communities in the outer boroughs of New York. But but as the Manhattan Institute, we can seek to to bridge the divides between those two groups and recognize that we often care about very similar things. Michael Hendricks with us, Senior Fellow and Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute. Something that you have written about, the Manhattan Institute focuses on is housing, housing availability, uh, housing stock across the country. Sometimes these questions come down to uh, you know, zoning issues or, or changing uh, local laws. W- when you look at housing questions in places across the country, why should current residents perhaps n- not have a, a large or even outsized say in matters like this? They're, they've been there. They are invested in the community. They are certainly local residents. Why shouldn't they have an outsized voice in these matters? So, so to, to backtrack slightly, I do believe that um, Americans should have a say over their future um, and, and over what happens to their kids, their, their, their grandparents, generations to come. That is very, very important. That should not go away. But I think what we have to recognize is that what used to be a coastal housing crisis is now becoming an all of America crisis. And by that, I mean, you know, it used to be that over the past couple of, uh, over the past couple of generations, uh, New York City, uh, San Francisco, Boston, they were seeing their home prices rise by 700%, at 900% in the case of, in the case of San Francisco, just enormous home price rises. And it became completely disconnected from the kind of incomes that the average San Franciscan had. Um, And it was very easy to say that that was a problem of San Francisco, New York, Boston, a place like that. But now, suddenly, you're seeing a place like Tampa, Florida, where over the past year, when you consider the rise in home prices during the pandemic and the rise in interest rates for mortgages, Mm -hmm. over the past year, you would have had, as a median resident of Tampa, you would have had to have gotten a 50% plus raise in your incomes to keep up with the price to afford the median home in Tampa. 50% raise. I don't know anybody who's getting a 50% raise. <laughs> if I didn't know, I want to know what their secret is. So so we're getting this enormous home price rise in the Tampas, the Atlantas, the Nashvilles, Salt Lake Cities, Phoenix, Boise, um, uh, Bozeman, Montana. You know, These are places that for generations have been very affordable. And it's not just, say, downtown Atlanta or, or Buckhead very wealthy enclave of, of Atlanta is becoming 
even more expensive. It's the outer suburbs too, even the exurbs. So we have to recognize that we have a problem, we have a challenge. It's not just a the inflation of gas or or food is becoming outrageous today. It's rent inflation, it's home price inflation. We need answers. And the 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 left, they only have an answer to say, you know, we need more government subsidy. We need more public housing. I, I don't know about you, but you know, as the Manhattan Institute, we've seen the failures of public housing in New York. NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority, biggest public housing stock in America. And it is outrageous, poisoning thousands of kids with with lead and covering it up. Uh, roaches, leaks, all sorts of enormous stuff. This is what they want to share across the rest of the country. And I think we should say no, absolutely not. Public housing has failed in America. We don't need more of it. And we also know that this kind of subsidy-driven affordable housing, you know, maybe there is a role for it for those who have no other no other options in America. Um, but what we've seen is that that kind of subsidized housing solution can never keep up. There's never enough what I'll call capital A affordable housing. The market must have the answer. And so a lot of what I'm arguing for are market-driven solutions to solving this housing crisis. And, and why should we do that? I think we should do that for our families. We should do it for our workers. We should do it for our future as, as Americans and our kind of constitutional property rights, protecting those. Mm -hmm. So this should be pro-family, pro-worker, pro-property rights, because it's pro-constitution. You've written recently that uh, to the consternation of some that Zoom and taking public meetings online hasn't saved democracy, that civic engagement is broken. Is pragmatic experience in local government critical to a revitalized conservative movement in America? And how do we encourage people to get involved? Well, I think that is absolutely true. You know, I, I remember as a, as a kid, I was a really nerdy kid, so pretty nerdy, you got to confess. And, you know, I would show up to our local, uh, our local town council meetings before Parks and Rec, the show came out. I was, <laughs> I was on our Parks and Rec board. I thought, you know, kids have to have a voice here too, right? For our parks and our playgrounds. Uh, I'm so glad that some adult, some crazy adult somewhere was like, you know what? I think this kid has a point. You know, but I was really astounded. Uh, even at a young age, get, getting involved, that for better or worse, it was it was often just it was often the kind of usual suspects who were who were always there. And thankfully, in our local community and in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, these were good folks. But when it's just a tiny minority that ever shows up to vote at local elections, uh, a tiny tiny share that ever shows up to you know, zoning hearings or really hearings and anything i think we've got to recognize that uh look if our elected officials if, if, if it's a tiny share that's electing them and those elected officials at the local level are really only ever hearing from a tiny sliver of the community mm -hmm. then maybe that's not truly democratic or 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 representative of the community uh and yet we say that we are you know, these, this level of government is kind of closer to the people. Well, who are the people showing up? I think once we ask those kind of hard questions, we say, gosh, I think 
I think something's off. I, th- I think we can make some some concrete reforms here. So, so one of the things that I that I tried to, to try to argue my piece for governing was that something about these local community hearings and that kind of local small d democracy is broken today. We have some good research out there from folks like Catherine Einstein and others, from Boston University, to show that. And just simply say, number one, the best way to have a voice in your local community is to vote, show up and vote. And we can actually make concrete reforms to make it easier to vote. So in many communities across the country, we have what are called off-cycle elections. So if you're used to showing up for a national election in November, you know those are the on-cycle elections. That's the cycle, the presidential race, Mm -hmm. congressional races. We know when that is. And a lot more Americans show up then. But in a lot of communities across the country, we have off-cycle elections that are not in November, but could be in May, could be, gosh, could be whenever. <laughs> and we know that the folks that show up to those elections that maybe we don't really hear about or that we're too busy raising their families and going to our jobs to really kind of spend time showing up to some random community center to vote in, we know from for a fact that the folks that show up for those off-cycle elections are overwhelmingly members of public sector unions, activist groups, many of them very left of center. And so government has to be very responsive. Local governments have to be very responsive to those interest groups. It, it, actually, communities that have off-cycle elections spend more, tax more, and pile on more debt. On-cycle elections are a great kind of like incremental reform that we can make so that if we want more small-D more small democracy, we can get that by reforming our elections. We can also do that too by saying, look, if we think that uh, on-cycle elections are going to be a little more partisan, kind of the, the national rancor is now going to come down to the local level, well, let's have more uh, identifiers on the ballots that we know who these people are that we're voting for mm-hmm. beyond just R or D. Maybe they're you know endorsed by the Club for Growth. Maybe they're Maybe uh, that candidate wants to say that they went to the Hillsdale. You know, maybe they want to say whatever it is to say, like, here's who I am. Maybe we should be able to put that on the ballot. Uh, just an idea, right? Um, to be the others to say, like, look, maybe when it comes to housing, for instance, maybe we shouldn't have a tiny hearing for every single time that you or I want to do something on our property. That's often what happens these days. Should be a little there. Should we? There shouldn't be hearings about everything under the sun. Maybe it's gone a little too far. Maybe we should say the real accountability comes when we set a community plan. A community plan, a comprehensive plan, sets out the vision for the community for the next couple of years. That's when we'll have our say, and we can do amendments to it. But but like there's there's a time and a place for the input, and then that just sort of sets what the law is going to be for the next couple of years. That that could be a way to say, let's channel input to very specific times, periods, and places, rather than all the time, everywhere. Final question for Michael Hendricks as we look toward the future of freedom. Manhattan Institute is involved in a couple of efforts, efforts targeting uh, the youth. Uh, am I on campus and the Adam Smith Society? Can you tell me a little bit about both of those? Absolutely. So, Adam Smith Society, I'll start there. Um, this was begun for a vision with our uh, MBA programs, the business schools, and understanding that you know this, 
this is the next generation of corporate leaders, CEOs and and the like. And there's a group of students back a handful of years ago who said, wait a second. These are the people who are going to lead her her economy and some of her big corporations and also start up some new ones and new innovations. And they're being taught things that have nothing to do with our with the original vision of, of, of capitalism. They know nothing of Adam Smith. They know nothing of Milton Friedman. They know nothing of what maybe you, you or I are reading or, or inspired by. Mm-hmm. And even if people aren't, at the end of the day, once they're exposed to Adam Smith, you know, coming around like uh, quoting Adam Smith here, there, and everywhere. Maybe, maybe they, maybe they still are not persuaded by it. At least they're exposed to those market-oriented ways of thinking, which should be the case if you're going to be a big figure in the marketplace. You should know what the vision for the market should be, and also have values in the marketplace as well. So that was the vision to expose these students to market-oriented beliefs um, and to build community, help them build community as well, to find common cause. And uh, it, it proved to be a smashing success. So, so, so went out to all the top business schools, uh, many other business schools all across the rest of the country. Now we've combined that with our vision for young adults who graduated college, graduated um, from graduate schools, and being able to build community for them, with them, in New York City, San Francisco, Dallas, and the like. So now we have a national network of like-minded people who believe in the kind of market-oriented vision that Ben Institute cares about. And that community, gosh, we've already seen over the past handful of years the kind of tremendous things that they've accomplished. I and we are, could not be more excited for what this community will build over the next handful of years and building on the kind of ideas that they've learned to Adam Smith Society. So MI on campus as well. MI on campus says, look, it's one thing to send our uh, fellows out to Capitol Hill, but what happens to those staffers who are talking with on Capitol Hill? What are they being taught in college? You know, we, we, we see what, uh, what's in some of the curriculum these days in, in colleges. Maybe we should be reaching them early on before they even get into the workforce with some of the ideas that maybe they'll later be exposed to at through Adam Smith Society or or maybe they go to work in Capitol Hill and they, they encounter our fellows there. Let's let's reach them early on. You know, so this is honestly speaking personally, one of my greatest privileges working at the Manhattan Institute is to be able to speak to young college students, to share what we're seeing across the rest of the country, to engage with their bright minds to hear the questions that are on the minds of these students and to be able to not only help partner with them and shape their thinking, but also to help, you know, uh, for those who want to stay in touch, to help mentor them, uh, point them to good internships. Of course, please come intern at the Manhattan Institute, <laughs> but also all across for institutions across, across the rest of the country. And then to just see what they go on and do is just so incredibly meaningful. And to even just have a small part of that really is life-changing. And I hope it's, I hope it's uh, meaningful for them as well, and I, and I believe it is. So am I on campus, out of the society? Please, if you're listening and you're at a business school, if you're a young graduate in cities across the country, if you're a student right now, uh, please reach out and let us know. We would love to partner with you and bring you into, into our community at the Manhattan Institute. 
Michael Hendricks, Senior Fellow and Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute. You can find more at manhattan-institute.org. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you. I'm Scott Bertram. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom presented by America's Talking Network.